This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. About a month ago, I gave a talk uh, about the four immeasurables and the, the characteristics that are their foundation, their ground. The four immeasurables of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And as I was speaking about this, I was quoting from a talk by Kandra Rinpoche. And uh, in it, she's saying that from a Vajrayana perspective, there are two approaches to practicing the four immeasurables, cultivating them. The first is for the sake of living beings, which really means that we practice them in order to attain enlightenment with the belief that they are good, that they are worthy practices, but with the understanding that they will ultimately lead to realization. And in the Visuddhimaga, the path of purification, um, Buddha Gosa, who's a 5th century Theravadan monk and scholar, explains how practicing the four immeasurables leads to the cultivation of the four jhanas, the deep states of meditation. So in other words, again, you practice them as, as preparation for concentration of himself. But this is kind of a limited approach to the four immeasurables. The second approach is to cultivate them just because to cultivate them for the sake of dharmata, of suchness, things as they are. And from this perspective, you realize that you don't need a reason to practice these qualities, that you do so because they are intrinsically who you are as a human being. That all of us, because we are um, in this human form, are capable of embodying these qualities. And this, she says, is the, the ultimate, the absolute, or the authentic approach. And she says that this confidence that allows you to bravely practice these four measurables is, is that absolute approach. But of course, whether you practice them for the sake of living beings, or in, in a sense for yourself, or just because you understand that they are who you are, we're practicing them, we're embodying them, and that's the whole point. For a while I had a, a quote on my altar by Shantideva, who can quote it the other day. It's a, a different quote, and it says, with perfect and unyielding faith, with steadfastness, respect, and courtesy, with modesty and conscientiousness, I will work calmly for the happiness of others. And I understand this perfect faith as the um, unshakable knowledge that these qualities, which are also the embodiment of the human nature, are in fact who we are as human beings. 
that that's why we can commonly wait, uh, work for the happiness of others. And I've, I've um, reflected many times, you know, said that Buddhism kind of sees the world through rosy colored glasses. You know, if it is true that we are by nature loving, kind, wise, why does the world look the way that it does? Is it, is it wishful thinking to think that that is our, our nature? And, you know, the, the um, God of Atonement really says why things are the way they are. And, uh, all evil karma ever committed by me since of old, on account of my beginningless grief, anger, and ignorance. Born of my body, mouth, and thought, I now atone for it all. So when something goes awry, when a white police woman shoots a, an innocent black man just because he's big, as happened last week in Oklahoma, when somebody plants a, a bomb in Manhattan, New Jersey, that is not because these uh, foreign measurables are not who we are, but because we become separated from that knowledge. It's because of a misapprehension of reality, you could say. Because of losing our direction on the path to the pursuit of happiness. And this misapprehension is what we call ignorance, beginningless, primordial ignorance or delusion. And that, that, that separation, that journey, that search for our true home, to returning to our true home is what we call the path. And this perfect, unyielding faith that Shantideva speaks of, of just, it doesn't just happen, of course. You can't just wake up one morning and decide, now I'm going to have to unyielding faith. It takes time, it takes effort to cultivate, to practice. It takes study, and more study. But we're so used to, and perhaps more and more, you're getting things quickly, conveniently, cheaply. I had heard of this before, but I sort of had an article, I guess I picked it up, in the New York Times about um, Sanbin, a new service by Amazon, Amazon Japan, which is essentially, and they call it that, as a priest on demand. And so for $300, you can order a priest to come to your home and do the service, or for instance, do a funeral. And uh, you know, there's a bit of controversy around it, but there's there's many who are um, really for it because it's it's uh, accessible, it's easy to do, and it's cheap. It's relatively cheap. It's probably going to go Japanese temple side business. I mean, I guess we could do the same thing. You know, people don't come to retreats, you could just do rent a month.
with steadfastness, respect, and courtesy, with modesty and conscientiousness, I will work calmly for the happiness of others. And I like how he phrases it, and I don't know, of course, what the original was, but uh, respect and courtesy and with modesty and conscientiousness, with um, great care, you could say, with um, careful regard for these beings' happiness that I am uh, working for, calmly working for. The first of the four immeasurables is loving kindness, metta in Pali or Maitri in Sanskrit. And that is the wishing of happiness for ourselves and for others. It's also one of the ten pramis, the pramitas, perfections. And it's interesting, Karma Rinpoche, when she describes it, she actually says that there isn't any thing you can point to and say, well, that's not kindness, that it's really the absence of negative emotions, like greed, anger, impatience, or stubbornness. And she says these are emotions that arise out of the exclusivity of the self. And of course, you know, from the perspective of the self, it makes perfect sense to be exclusively focused. We have to take care of this and those things that we feel or are responsible for. In reflecting on the many moments in which kindness hasn't been my first impulse, or the second, or the third, that I can always really trace that to the presence of fear. That I'm afraid that this will go away, whatever this is in that moment. My life, my position, my security, my health. I may lose all this to environmental collapse, to war. I may lose it to illness, to violence, to death. I may lose it to you taking from me what I want or need. And this fear, I think when we're in the midst of it, it is very real, is very compelling. It drives our actions. Master Dogen says in the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, water is not earth, water, fire, wind, space, or consciousness. It is not blue, yellow, red, white, or black. It is not form, sound, smell, taste, touch, or idea. Nevertheless, the water of earth, water, fire, wind, space, and the rest is spontaneously appearing. This being the case, it becomes difficult to explain by what and of what this present land and palace are made. To say that they rest on the wheel of space and the wheel of wind is true neither for oneself nor for others. It is just speculating on the basis of supposition of little understanding and is only said out of fear that without such a resting place, things would not abide. Whenever I I read the Mountains and River Sutra, I very much hear Daira's voice in my ear. I hear him reading it, his rhythm, his intonation, as he, there's that um, recording of a Genjo Koan online, Shobogenzo Genjo Koan, 
he loved the sutras, you know, and of course it's the name of our order. And it is difficult to explain by what and of what this present land and palace are made. It is more difficult even to explain where they go when they disappear, when they change. And so living with the, the possibility, the certainty, in fact, of losing our ground, of things not abiding, leads us to be stingy, to be judgmental, to be harsh, not loving or kind. And these aren't actually you know, made-up fears. I mean, many of them are, but many are quite real. I saw a headline um, about college kids who are drinking themselves into oblivion because they're afraid. They're afraid of, of social of, of um, job insecurity. They're afraid of debt. They're debt. And this isn't fantasy. It's a real concern. So is it even possible in such circumstances, in such a world that is so full of self-inflicted, other-inflicted pain, injustice, bias, is it possible to be kind in such circumstances? to be loving. And I believe the four immeasurables are saying, yes, these conditions that lead to suffering and this suffering is pervasive and our intrinsic nature is loving kindness. They're not saying lay down and take it. You know, just resign yourself and do the best you can because this is, this is the best you're going to get. I think they're saying, just as Kandu Rinpoche is saying, do what needs to be done and do so bravely and kindly. They're saying, given that there is no ground anyway, why not live with kindness, with compassion, with joy and equanimity? Because sooner or later we will all lose what we hold most dear. That was one of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha, the five remembrances. You know, I am of the nature to grow old, and I cannot avoid that. I am of the nature to become ill. I'm of the nature to die. Everything I own, everything I have, everything I know, I will lose. And so the only thing that I have is my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. So he's saying this is the only thing that we have. It's the only thing that we can stand on. And another way of, of saying this, Shugen Sensei was alluding to that, is that there is no fixed ground to stand on. And to really know this may be the firmest ground that we'll ever have. I imagine it to be like, uh, like surfing, you know, which I've, I've never done. But what I imagine it to be, you know, that you, you have to stay nimble to stay on that board. You know, the moment you become rigid and flexible... The wave just swallows you up. But it's uncertain, of course, to not have, to think that we don't have that ground. But there are, there are, there are some conditions that make loving kindness more possible, more accessible. 
And these are, these are mine, so I'm sure there are others, but I think one of them is warmth. Another one is gratitude. Another one is humility. Because I think it's very difficult to be cold and kind at the same time, to be resentful, to be arrogant or prideful, judgmental, imperious. Somebody called me that once, and they were, they were right. I had to look it up actually, before I knew (laughs) if they were right, but they were right. I had been put in charge in a very small way, but I had been put in charge, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I was terrified, actually. And I made up for it with bravado, with harshness. And, you know, from one perspective, it's really very transparent. But when you're the victim, when you're on the receiving end of someone else's hubris, it can be difficult you know, to remember. And, I, and I, I remember the first time that that clicked for me, that I saw that in another. Oh, you know, this person is afraid. They're in pain. That's why they're lashing out. And it was such a shift. It was such a turn you know, for me to actually be able to just then be with them to be a little bit kind towards them, to not judge them for their anger or their harshness, to not lash back myself for feeling hurt. And I've been thinking of of Kaijin for a number of reasons recently, and... um, and for those of you who, who did not know her, Kaijin was one of our monastics. She was here for over 20 years. She came from uh, New Zealand, from our group there. She was originally from uh, England. And uh, she was our gardener for many years. She was our housekeeper, housekeeping supervisor. And she was possessive, let's say, of her housekeeping, especially, you know, if you left your your clothes downstairs for an extra day or two, you would find your favorite shirt all cut up in the rag bin. (laughs) So you had to be really on your game with her. (laughs) And um, she was also a workhorse. I mean, she worked really hard. And as she got a little bit older, she couldn't sit on the, on the floor anymore. Actually, she could sit fine. It was just hard for her to get up and down. So she started sitting in a chair, and we put her back where the Jisha is now so she could be close to the, the hallway if she needed to get up or anything. And, um, but she would often you know, fall asleep, and so it became a bit precarious for the monitor who was sitting next to her because she could lean quite a bit. And so we put her in a chair with armrests, um, and she would sit there, and one, I don't remember if it was a shin or a Sunday, we were taking pictures of uh, Zazen for the catalog. <laughs> Some of you know where this is going. <laughs> and, uh, excuse me. <clears throat> and <clears throat> she, was, uh, she was sitting in her chair, and uh, one of our students who was taking photographs took this really iconic <laughs> shot of Kaijin. You see in the, the kind of soft background this perfectly straight line of row of sitters and Kaijin right in the foreground. So she's, you know, maybe two feet away, three feet away, completely diagonal like this, and her eyes are closed and she's suspended and she's just there, either in samadhi or, or deep sleep. But it was such a such a 
picture of Kaijin, and Fusei had it as her, uh, her uh, desktop picture you know, for a while. And I was remembering that. I don't rem- remember what reminded me of that recently, but her, her nephew came um, maybe a month or two ago, and he came to visit her grave, and um, he also wanted to talk. He was having... Um, his daughter actually was having a difficult time and he just wanted to speak with someone. And so we spoke for a while and he was telling me how um, in a few years earlier, he was going through a really rough time in his marriage. He was getting divorced, in fact. And he came to speak to Kaijin and she said, and and he asked her advice. And she always... uh, Towards the end of her life, especially, we always you know could just raise her finger and say loving kindness, you know, loving kindness. She she uh, evoked the Dalai Lama a lot, and he said that when she when he asked her for advice, what to do because he felt well, she said loving kindness, and he said, but I'm having a really hard time because I'm really angry. That what she said to him was, well, then get larger. Uh, step back and, and see your life see as, uh, from a bird's eye view and then reach in and pluck the anger out and get rid of it. Now, apparently, he said that to her sometime later and she claimed she'd never said that. But um, in a sense, it doesn't matter because it saved him, really. And that really struck me because it's, in a way, it's a different way to get close isn't it? It's, it's become larger. Look at the larger picture so that this obstruction, in this case anger, feels so small, really, and you just flick it away. And then last week I found a poem by chance in this book that she gave me, that she was giving everyone, The Mother of All Buddhas, uh, and, and it's the next issue of the Mountain Record, and she became really enamored with this concept of um, Prajnaparamita, the womb, the source of all Buddhas being feminine, which is kind of a little odd because she was always so anti-feminist, and yet just at the end of her life, she seemed to really um, embrace this uh, but I found this poem, which explains some things. Uh, it's written in her, in her hand. And it says, verse on the occasion of my birth. And in her, her spidery handwriting, she had in, in um, parentheses, to the baby, me. Child of a mother who cannot give you love. Do not believe that no one else can love you. Do not let your mother's sorrow turn you against yourself. You are loved. You are love. Trust this. I didn't uh, realize uh, so many things really about her, but uh, it put her in perspective. You know, so much of her crankiness at times, so much of her self-hatred and her self-doubt. And at least I, I want to think that then, and hopefully earlier than this, she knew that you have to begin by directing loving kindness to yourself. 
May I be filled with happiness and know the root of happiness. May I be free of enmity, affliction, and anxiety, says Buddha Gosa. And I think sometimes we forget that we can and should start with ourselves. I mean, we think, isn't that selfish? And so much of our time is spent thinking about ourselves. But, you know, you can't build a house without a foundation. There's a time to tear down the house, and there's a time to build it if it needs to be built. And reinforce it if it's been compromised. And if you haven't learned from another how to love yourself, then you have to learn. You have to teach yourself. And that's what the four immeasurables, one of the things that the four immeasurables can do. May I be filled with happiness and know the root of happiness. And then you extend it. You know, the practice of the, the four immeasurables is you, you start with yourself. And then you extend it to uh, those you love. And then you extend it to all beings. And last, you extend it to those who are your enemies or that you have trouble with, difficulty with. Can we consider wishing for for ourselves to be filled with happiness and to know its root? Not an intellectual knowing, but to deeply understand its root, which is interdependence. The very real understanding that I can't be happy without you. This is what, in our news, is so lacking. You know, that understanding. That I depend on you, that my life depends on you. Can we really let ourselves know that, feel that, because it's quite vulnerable and tender and necessary. Can we also hold ourselves in those moments, short or long, when we don't feel loving or kind? Those moments when we feel strongly Strongly, the need to protect ourselves. And so we can take in, let alone practice, a a teaching that is asking us to be loving and kind unconditionally, because that's really the immeasurable part of these four immeasurables. It is unconditional. So in other words, can we love ourselves unconditionally? Start there. And, you know, and if this sounds mushy, too soft... And what about clarity and penetrating insight? Isn't that what Zen is about? Consider, consider the, um, the fierceness and the courage it takes to remain kind and open in the face of uncertainty. The kind of clarity that it takes to not give in to our territoriality, our sense of possessiveness. I mean, forget about countries, we do it in dish crew. We do it in work practice, waiting in line for the bathroom at the bread table. To release just a little bit that sense of exclusivity. So kindness arises naturally out of an attitude of, of unprotectedness or 
non-defensiveness. And at the same time, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this to someone who's in an abusive marriage, for example. I mean, I would say, protect yourself and get out. Or a victim of human trafficking, of terrorism. <clears throat> so what is the skillful means for when, for, for whom, and when? Because these, these teachings of the Buddha Dharma are universal teachings. They are speaking uh, universally to the human condition. But of course, how each of us experiences the many gradations, flavors of suffering, will vary, right? Depending on our circumstances, depending on our karma. So my karma is very different from that of a black man, a transgender woman, a white man. And so how I experience how I move through this life is different from the way that you move through it. <clears throat> and certainly as we, as we walk out the door, that becomes even more true. So if my position is such that, in general, I'm not worried every day that there's going to be a bomb falling on my head, or that every time I walk out on the street I may be killed, with that position, that privilege, comes a certain responsibility, I feel. It presents me with, a, with a, an imperative, a particular imperative to not perpetuate that suffering, any suffering in the world. How? Any way that I can. But to start by understanding deeply our interdependence, by practicing gratitude, among other things. If not for you, I wouldn't be here. My parents, of course, who've given me life. My teachers, who've also given me life. The people who grow the food I eat, you know, make the clothes that I wear, write the books I read, give me everything that I have, really. You know, the moment that that, that, that really shifts... The moment your relationship with your parents, for example, in your mind shifts from one of annoyance to one of gratitude, realizing really how much they have, in fact, given you. Same thing, same thing with your teachers. You know, I, I, um, in one sense, I, I always felt some sense of gratitude because I couldn't, in one way, I almost couldn't believe that I could have found this. And, you know, a, a, a person to study, to guide me, to study with, to guide me, that I, that I had found the teachings and that I was able to practice them. Sometimes I still can't believe it. But the moment that, that shift really, really kind of, uh, well, it, that really happened from um, what am I going to get from this person, what can this person give me, to uh, just realizing the um, boundless doesn't even reach it, how much of themselves they uh, were constantly giving me, are giving me, for my sake, for my awakening. And it becomes... 
I don't know, perhaps not impossible, but extremely difficult to not feel a, a debt of gratitude, to not feel I, I must find some way to give this back. Maybe that's a good place to start, you know, when we're in conflict with someone. Because so often when that happens, I mean, we just want them to go away. You know, and, and what would happen if we could actually get our wish? You know, if we had that, that disagreement with our teacher and they were just gone. Disagreement with a fellow uh, practitioner, a monastic, a resident, or just fellow practitioners, and they were gone, disappeared. It would be a very small world after a while, a world of one, two, perhaps. <laughs> one, probably. <laughs> And of course, in reality, people don't go away. Situations don't go away, but we do wish them away in our minds. You know, we avoid, we ignore, we subsume. And the practice of loving kindness is, um, implies a willingness to remain open to that which we want to close down to. It, it um, maybe allows a a view of all of this as this incredibly intricate tapestry. Um, I I saw this uh, exhibit a few years ago of these Dutch tapestries that are huge. I mean, some of them are almost the back of the the, the space between the two doors in the back of the Zendo. And so they're, they're woven over generations, and so not one member of the family will see the whole picture. And I think entering, entering loving kindness gives you a sense of that, that you're just this thread, this one thread in this incredibly vast tapestry. And you can't see all of it. It's impossible to see all of it. And perhaps that is also why humility is, is uh, an important aspect of loving kindness, the knowledge that I don't have the full picture. I don't know everything there is to know about the situation, this person. One time I was in the, in the dining hall, and there was a fellow resident who um, just was certain he knew how to say a, a particular word in Spanish, and he was telling me about it. And um, I don't remember what the word was. I kept trying to remember. I don't remember what it was. And he was like, you know, you say it this way. And I said, well, no, no, it's actually really this way. And he insisted. And I said, well, I mean, I'm from Mexico. It's my first language. You think I might perhaps know how you say this? It was like a fly was buzzing. In his ear. I mean, he was just, he was certain. He just knew. And we often would rather be certain. We would rather stand on solid ground. What we think is solid ground. I was doing some uh, reading on um, just mantras in Buddhism and how they're used and um, I came across this, this story about a, uh, a teacher who um, spends a number of years uh, working with Om Mani Padme Hum, 
It's called a six-syllable mantra for Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva of Compassion. And he had attained enough insight to begin teaching. And so he did that and did what he thought was he did pretty well. And then he heard that a hermit was living nearby. And he thought, you know, that's a good, good chance to test my, my understanding and the hermit's understanding. And so he set off, and the hermit, who was an old man, lived in a, uh, on a lake, in a hut in the middle of a, of a lake on an island. And so the, the teacher hired, um, uh, hired a, um, a ferryman to get him across. And he gets there, and he has tea. He, he introduces himself, and he has tea with a hermit, and he's being respectful. And he asks him, you know, what is your, your spiritual practice? And the hermit says, well, I don't really have one. I've just been working on this mantra day and night for the last 30 years. And the teacher says, oh, you know, what, what is it? And the hermit says, well, it's Omani Pemahong. And the teacher doesn't say anything. I mean, he just has this horrified look in his face. And the hermit says, what's wrong? And the teacher says, well, I just, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid that you've wasted your whole life because you've been saying it wrong. And the hermit says, well, that's, that's terrible. I mean, how should I say it? And the teacher says, well, it's Omani Pema Hum, uh, Omani Padme Hum. And the hermit repeats it a couple of times, says, okay, well, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to really get started right away. And the teacher says, sure, no, no problem. I'll, I'll leave you to it. And so he gets on his boat and he's, and he's leaving. And he's thinking, you know, and he's, now he feels he's confirmed, you know, in his teaching ability. And uh, he thinks, you know, it's really good that I, that I came because this poor guy, you know, he just wasted all this time. But at least now he has a chance to, to start, start over. And as he's thinking this, he looks up at the, the boatman who has a horrified look on his face. And he turns and the hermit is standing on the water next to the boat. And the teacher just looks at him, and he's, the hermit says, well, you know, I'm really sorry, but I, I forgot how you said I was supposed to say the mantra, so can you repeat it for me? And the teacher says, well, I, I don't really think you need it. And now he's horrified again for a different reason. And the hermit says, no, 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 but I, I, really, I really want to know. Can you please tell me? So he repeats it, and then they start rowing away, and as he turns, he sees the, the old hermit is very slowly, very carefully repeating the mantra, the correct version of the mantra over and over as he's walking across the water back to his home. That is the, the power of walking on uncertain ground, or the power of not being certain. All dharmas are ultimately liberated. They have no abode, says Master Dogen, quoting the Buddha. And, you know, it's because all dharmas are ultimately liberated that love and kindness is our original nature. It's because there is no ground to stand on that we can stand anywhere freely. Water is neither strong nor weak, neither wet nor dry, neither moving nor still, neither cold nor hot neither being nor non-being, neither delusion nor enlightenment. Solidified, it is harder than diamond. Who could break it? Melted, it is softer than milk. Who could break it? 
And I think water is a good, good image for loving kindness because you can't mess with water. It is a tsunami. It is an impenetrable glacier. Or it shifts and changes. It is clouds. In, a, in an instant, it's not there. So it is, it is what it needs to be given the circumstances. And sometimes you have to be harder than diamond. Sometimes what is needed is to be softer than milk. In my zazen, I was telling someone there are many times when I, I've read myself the riot act. I've thought, you know, there, there's no time to waste here. And I've been firm, and I would say even cutting. Not of myself, but of those thoughts that would take me away from myself, actually. So I didn't see this this way at first, but I've come to realize it's actually a very loving practice to take care of my mind, to protect my mind. And gradually I also learned how to open and allow the world to come in. So sometimes you cut away the extra. Sometimes you allow everything that that needs to come in, everything that is there actually, to be there. So you can see it clearly. So you can love it. We must bring bring to realization the path on which the self encounters the self. We must move back and forth along and spring up from the vital path on which the other studies and fully comprehends the other. And one of the definitions of Maitri is an active interest in others. I like that. Loving kindness then is studying and fully comprehending the other studying and fully comprehending ourselves and knowing that the two are not different. Someone asked me the other day, you know, where is the feminine in Zen? And if by feminine we mean deeply caring, nurturing of what is good and true, what is life-affirming, why then I would say that it is everywhere. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.